All right, let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to fellowship in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Father. Thank you for the family you've given us within this beautiful church that you've ordained that shines as a beacon of light in a world that's just decaying, Father. It's just so awful to see, but yet we're so confident in our hope. We're so confident in your grace, your mercy, your love, Father. Thank you for shining this light in our hearts amongst a perverse generation, Father. Father, thank you for, at times, bringing us low so that you can reveal your will and your purpose in our life. Thank you for all the little things, Father, the good, the bad, the ugly. Thank you for letting us see it all as truth along the way. Father, we pray for those that can't be with us, and we pray most of all for those that are still lost. We're so very grateful and thankful for your son's work so many years ago to make a morning like this a reality for us. We just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the deceitfulness of sin, part 12. Um, from this past week, we have this. No pity parties. Even his unanswered, quote, unanswered prayers include a divine answer. The answer is no. That's actually an answer. Um, we pray for a lot of things. The Spirit, thank God, intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We have uh, the great mediator, Jesus Christ himself, praying on our behalf as well, always. And so I wonder sometimes how disjoint our prayers actually are <laughs> from his will, the things we might plead with him to be delivered from, um, the pity parties we throw, uh, even in our own souls. I wonder what he thinks of all that. Nonetheless, this is what we've learned. True humility says, Thy will be done, or God's will be done. So if you do pray uh, with boldness and confidence before the throne of grace and the answer supposedly never comes or what you think should happen doesn't happen, say this to yourself. God's will be done. Um, the deceitfulness of sin leads us away from this one very simple maxim. If we're, I suppose if we're all to get a tattoo today, I would vote for this. Just your, whatever your will is, Lord. Whatever is pleasing to you, your will be done. That's all I really want. I just surrender. I just surrender. Just whatever you want. Wonderful, wonderful way but to go about life. But sin doesn't want us to live that way. 
That's the whole point. That sin is undermining that every chance it gets. Not God's will. A little bit of my will. A little salt and pepper, right? Not God's will. Not complete submission. Not surrender. That's too strong of a word. How about we put God on the influencer level? Not absolute. Not orientation, but influence. Let's kind of put him over here so he's just sort of this, you know, this magnetic type influence. And when I feel like it, when I'm not in my own selfish mood, then God's will be done. And I'll create my own little religion around all of that. And when I don't get my own way, I throw a pity party. That's the deceitfulness of sin. If we just surrendered, life would be good. If we just wholly surrendered. I was thinking about that. Um, you know, we're all going through something right now. I mean, does anybody want to raise their hand and say you're not going through something? You're not struggling with some thought or situation from within or even from without, which causes internal struggles within? We're all going through something right now. It's rare that life ever allows a practicing believer any real rest from without. Just that when you think you've landed on your two feet and on solid ground, the world starts pelting you. So it's rare that life ever allows a practicing believer any real rest from without. Up here on the board, your will be done. We must find our peace then from within. From Christ, the only one whose promise is true. Sin lies and says, I'll give you peace. Doesn't tell you it's only temporary. Doesn't tell you that it's uh, a counterfeit. Doesn't tell you that it's a, a, a thin veneer of peace. The world's way of giving you peace is we'll leave you alone for a little while. Okay? We'll stop antagonizing you if you promise not to move forward in the word of truth. That's their version of peace, you see? We need to find our peace from above. We must find our peace from within, from Christ, the only one whose promise is true. John 14, I should say 27, not 2. John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Again, the world's counterfeit is, I'm going to haunt you every day that you take a step forward towards Christ. And my peace will be, I'll let you alone. And Christ says, no, I need you to go forward. I press on for the upward call. And in that, I'll give you peace. I'll give you my peace. Not like that other counterfeit. Because I'm telling you, when you walk forward, you're going to get haunted by the world. The world's going to disagree with you every step of the way. Nonetheless, sin will lie to us, proposing that we might find peace somewhere else or with someone else, even. For example, the opposite sex, friends, you know, bosses, maybe my boss will give me a, pro I don't know, whatever, promo or 
whatever it is you think peace is going to, how peace is going to land in your life. Sin lies to you. If you just get that one next carrot, if you just take that one extra step down that pathway, right, onto thin ice, we'll leave you alone. Again, sin lies, proposing that we might find peace somewhere else or with someone else. Concentrate here. To believe such a lie is to be dominated by sin. To believe that you can find peace anywhere other than in Christ Jesus is to be dominated by sin. Some argue that sin can always be, you know, personified with a red face and horns. You know, like sin's just, you know what I'm getting at. You know, it's all bad stuff. It's, you know, it's only like, you know, smacking people and flipping people off on the road and, you know, being aggressive, being overtly sinful. That's what sin wants you to think about sin. Doesn't want you to understand what Satan looks like or acts like. Doesn't want you to understand if Satan was sitting right beside you, you wouldn't even know I existed. Men and women. Men, you'd probably almost turn gay. No, I'm being, I'm not, you know what I'm saying, right? I'm not, you know what I'm getting at, right? This is the most attractive creature you can possibly imagine. Even more than me. I'm just kidding. I'm just trying to loosen you up. You guys are really serious. <laughs> I'm serious. Like, he would be so attractive, you couldn't take your eyes off him. You would want to hear everything he had to say. You'd want to look at him. You'd want to be with him. That's how attractive. He don't want you to think of him that way. Just like sin doesn't want you to think of it that way. Sin is that attractive to you. Your flesh loves sin. So some argue that sin's, you know, red face and horns and that kind of garbage. But you see, that is exactly what sin wants you to think. This is why we are on this topic right now, the deceitfulness of sin. The emphasis all along has been on the word deceitfulness. If sin weren't so insidious, we'd already be moving on to another topic. Let's put it that way. If it weren't so insidious, we'd be, I'd be teaching something else already. We'd be talking about other things. But it is, my dear sheep. I mean, it truly is that insidious. Up here on the board, the deceitfulness of sin, the most dangerous aspects of sin are the ones we don't readily identify as sin at all. Those are the most dangerous ones. It is their ability to hide out that makes them the most dangerous. It's easy to see something overt in front of you. I mean, you say, well, there you are. Da-da. Right? It's hard to identify things that specialize in hiding out. And that's exactly what sin is good at. Hiding out. So the most dangerous aspects of sin are the ones we don't readily identify as sin at all. It is their ability to, quote, hide out that makes them the most dangerous. I'll give you an analogy here. A few months ago, I was listening to a weathered U.S. Navy submarine officer speak about submarines. 
Here are a few facts. And this, you don't think of submarines this way, but this is true. Navy subs are among the most lethal instruments of war on Earth, hands down. Stacked to the hilt with nuclear warheads. Are among the least armored. And here's the kicker. Depend wholly on stealth as a defense mechanism. They have no defense mechanism. Literally. None. So there's this dichotomy, right? Massively offensive with no defense. It'd be like being a boxer, going into the ring, having 10 times Mike Tyson's strength, but literally no defense. So if even one person landed a punch, you're out. That's a submarine. So therein lies the dichotomy of a submarine, most of which, to my knowledge, nowadays, the ones that, you know, are bleeding edge or worth having anymore, are nuclear-powered and carry nuclear warheads. Let me give you a little perspective on that. An Ohio-class submarine during the height of the Cold War could reduce as many as 288 city-sized targets to, into radioactive ash in less than 30 minutes. One sub. 288 city-sized targets to ash in in a half an hour. One sub. So suffice to say, these are extremely lethal weapons of warfare. And yet, if I had a naval officer standing here, he'd be the first to tell you that relative to its immense offensive power, if you take away its ability to hide out, it's essentially defenseless. It's the dichotomy, right? It's literally defenseless. In other words, arguably the most lethal weapons ever created, pound for pound, are also the most defenseless when discovered by enemies. Hmm. So the most lethal weapon is also the most defenseless when discovered. You see the analog? Up here on the board. The most dangerous aspects of sin are the ones we don't readily identify as sin at all. It is their ability to hide out that makes them the most dangerous. Sin is very powerful until it is identified by the light of the word. It then becomes defenseless. Oh, does I don't have that up there? Oh, man. Is it half of it up there? Yeah, I didn't put the rest of the sentence up there. Let me read it to you again. The most dangerous aspects of sin are the ones we don't readily identify as sin at all. It is their ability to hide out that makes them the most dangerous. Here's the part that's missing. Sin is very powerful until it is identified by the light of the word. It then becomes defenseless. You see it? Sin is the most powerful thing, destructive force in your life, okay? But if light comes on and shines on it, it's now defenseless. 
It has no real power against the holy God of the universe because God is omnipotent, all-powerful. This is the Word of God. The Word of God came in the flesh, Jesus Christ. You want to beat sin in your life, this is the only option you've got. This is the only option you've got. Otherwise, you, my friends, will be decimated. Because sin is a lot more powerful than you, as is the father of it, Satan himself, and all his little goonies, and his agents, etc., etc. Sin is very powerful until it is identified by the light of the Word. It then becomes defenseless. This is why the world, led by the God of this world, hates the light. Go to John 3.19. John 3.19. That's why I told you at the start of this series, all hell was going to break loose. I just had a conversation with someone this morning in there. From everywhere, from without, they're being assaulted. From within, from without. (laughs) All hell is breaking loose. Why? Because they're sort of holding their ground. Nobody's perfect at it, but they're holding their ground. And Satan hates it. Satan hates the light. Satan doesn't want this person or any of you to produce any real good in this world. Doesn't want you to take even a half a step closer to Christ. Doesn't want you to understand. Doesn't want you, certainly doesn't want you to be confident in your purpose in Christ. That's extremely dangerous. Because that means you're, you're going to be able to see sin where it lies. In your life, in the lives of others. Because the lights are going to start turning on. And all the dark corners are going to be illuminated. And sin is defenseless. I mean, if a, if a good old Ohio-class sub shows up as a giant blip on someone's radar, you know what they're going to do? They're going to fire on it. Because now they see it. They say, there it is. John 3.19 This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. Not, you know, doesn't like not kind of like it, isn't irritated by it, hates it. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that its deeds, his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Thy will be done. Come into the light. Just come into the light. You're going to go through some pain and suffering. There are going to have to be some adjustments in your life. There are going to have to be some adjustments with people, even, in relationships, possibly, in your life. But those are all necessary. And sin's going to drag its ugly feet and white-knuckle the walls and anything it can grab along the way to keep you from pressing forward. This series is despised by the God of this world. It really and truly does not want to be seen. That is the nature of sin. The God of this world and all his sons of disobedience or unbelievers hate the light so much that they do the most effective thing they could possibly do to it. I mean, what do you do when 
something is infinitely more powerful than you and you want to undermine it, the only option you have is to counterfeit it. That's it. So what do you think sin does in your life? Do you think it doesn't counterfeit peace? Do you think it doesn't manufacture some ungodly version of contentment? Or put a smile on your face a little bit? You know when you're doing that thing you're not supposed to be doing and you're smiling? That thing. That's sin. And it's a counterfeit. Go to 2 Corinthians 11.14. 2 Corinthians 11.14. And this is what the Spirit's getting at in this series. It's not about sin. You all are well-educated enough. You know what sin is. I mean, basically, it's just not doing the will of God. Okay. Well, if you take any time with that statement, you know that that's a very big statement. 2 Corinthians 11.14 So what options does our enemy have? No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. So what sin wants is when our radar, you know, have you ever seen a radar scope? Basically, that little thing spins around. It's like, you know, bleep, bleep, I'm going to see some. It just wants to think, hey, look at that. It's just another expanse of ocean. There's nothing there. And there's nothing wrong with the ocean, right? Or it's just the size of a, you know, a little beluga whale. There's nothing wrong with a little beluga whale, right? Probably kind of cute. It disguises itself. Concentrate. Why would Satan and his servants, this is really important, by the way, this part. Why would Satan and his servants choose to masquerade as angels of light? I mean, that's a good question, isn't it? Like, doesn't he have other options? Let's take it from the other side. Doesn't he have other options? I mean, if he hates God so much, why not just, you know, be on his way? Why would Satan and his servants choose to masquerade as angels of light? Why not just eject themselves from any relationship whatsoever with God and be on their merry way? I mean, I think about, I'm thinking about Job right now. What did Satan do? Job went up, Satan went right back up into heaven. Do you understand? And God had a conversation with him. Go ahead. Take my, my servant Job. Blame us upright. Do what you want. Just don't kill him. Oh, he's going to give up on you. What? Why even, what is he doing? Why is Satan going back to God then? I mean, why, why does Satan and those that disguise themselves as angels of light masquerade themselves? Why, do they, why are they in your life? I mean, why not just, you know, eject themselves from any relationship whatsoever with God and be on their merry way? I mean, I'm speaking as a man, of course. Why not just leave we believers alone? Leave the Bible alone. Go about their own business, 
quote, privately. We find the answer in our knowledge of the very nature of sin. This is the baseline. It's why we keep writing those blogs behind the scenes, like, to build up this baseline. Why do they do this? The answer is the very nature of sin. (laughs) If sin were a person, you ready? If sin were a person, he'd never let a good person alone. Never. If there were only two people on the island, one was sin and one was righteousness, sin, sin would, would keep nagging the righteousness. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Righteousness would try to get on the other side of the island would follow it. Why? If sin were a person, he wouldn't say, you know, sayonara, I'm going to go over here and mind my own business and never speak with you again. He would never do that. Not even close. If sin were a person, he'd, be, he'd never be satisfied until everyone in his presence was pinned on their backs with their soft underbellies showing. Yeah. Perfect example. Sin and righteousness on, a, on an island. 20-mile island. Hey, why don't we just split this thing in two? Nope. I'm going to haunt you for as long as we're here. I'm going to chase you around. Because I'm not satisfied. Up here on the board. Sin is never satisfied with equality. It must dominate. It's never, you know, we couldn't split the island down the middle. He'd never be satisfied. Do you understand? Never. Uh, Little microcosms of that. GJ and I were talking about that before class. You know, he's being honest, right? He's like, I see a, a speed limit sign at 50, I go 55. No, why? You gotta have that little, see? I just gotta be, you know, I just gotta be like 5149. Me against the law. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm getting at? We all do it. We're never satisfied. Ever. Because sin is never satisfied with equality. Put that away. It wants to dominate. That's Teshuka. Why do you think all this language the feminists use about equality is bunk? Bunk. It's not a quality that these ungodly women and the pathetic men who support them seek. It's dominance. They're not after equality. If you think that, you're an idiot. It's dominance. Can't tell you how many times I've been in the presence of a feminist type woman and she won't stop taking jabs at me. Seriously, I've even moved across rooms to get away from these people. From across the room, they'll take jabs at me. It's unbelievable. It's almost like, you know what? She can't help herself. Why? Probably because my very presence as a man of God, as a, I hate to say this the wrong way, but as a real man, whatever, is threatening to her sin nature. Sin nature goes, right? If I came in like a little pathetic worm without anything to say about Christ, I don't stand anything, you know, figuratively speaking, I'm not standing up straight for Jesus Christ. 
She probably loved me. She probably embraced me. But no. That's sin. The point the Spirit's making here is this, up here on the board. The nature of sin. Sin is never satisfied with equality or some sort of, you know, truce. You take that part of the island, I'll take this. It just isn't. It's not its nature. Sin's intention is to dominate, nothing less. Since we stand in the light as believers, the only option it has is to masquerade as light. That's 2 Corinthians 11, 14, and 15, we just read. To counterfeit it, to gain our attention. Yeah. Never satisfied with equality. Its intention is to dominate, nothing less. Since we stand in the light as believers, the only option it has is to masquerade as light, to counterfeit it, to gain our attention. This is precisely where things get interesting for us. Think about it. Life would be a lot easier if sin made a habit of announcing itself, wouldn't it? Here I am. I'm going to take you down right now. You ready? One, two, three. All right, put up your dukes. No. Sin's like slashing your Achilles tendon. Do you know what I'm saying? Coming from behind. Crippling you. Undermining you. Slithering on the ground. Flanking you. It doesn't, it's not interested in coming up front. Look, he wants to dominate you. It, doesn't, it never says he wants to do it, quote, fairly. It's going to do whatever it takes to dominate you. So life would be a lot easier if sin made a habit of announcing itself. But like the stealthy war machines built by mankind, for example, subs, it depends wholly on hiding out. Sin knows it is defenseless against the word of truth. The light. So the conclusion up here on the board on the nature of sin, the only way someone or something can simultaneously oppose you at heart and dominate you is to counterfeit that which you hold dear. For example, your principles, the word of truth, the light itself. The only way someone or something can simultaneously oppose you at heart and dominate you is to counterfeit that which you hold dear. Your principles, the word of truth, the light itself, etc., etc. Go to Psalm 55, verse 12. Psalm 55, verse 12. Because sin doesn't like to announce itself, in other words. Not to believers, anyways. Life goes a lot smoother in our little ridiculous, you know, I don't know, pretend realities if we can sin and call it righteousness. Psalm 55, 12. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. Back door, son of a gun. We who had sweet fellowship together, walked in the house of God in the throng. Let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol. 
for evil is in their dwelling, in their midst. As for me, I shall call upon God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon I will complain and murmur, and he will hear my voice. He will redeem my soul in peace from the battle which is against me, for they are many who strive with me. God will hear and answer them, even the one who sits enthroned from of old, Salah, with whom there is no change and who do not fear God. He has put forth his hands against those who are at peace with him. He has violated his covenant. Verse 21, his speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was war. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Again, the point on the board, the only way someone or something can simultaneously oppose you at heart and dominate you is to counterfeit that which you hold dear. Your principles, the word of truth, the light itself. Smooth as butter, heart of war. I love how David, the psalmist there, saw past all the deception that was working through his enemies and its wonderful wisdom from the very man that God describes as after his own heart. Look at verse 22, and look, it should look familiar, actually. It should be New Testament familiar to you. Verse 22, he says, After that, cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Years later, the apostle Peter echoes David's sentiments. Go to 1 Peter 5, verse 5. 1 Peter 5, verse 5. So what is your deliverance, in other words? That was the dynamic there in that psalm. What is your deliverance? Your deliverance is to identify your enemies and cling to the Lord. Do what you're doing right now. Get the word of truth. Be guided by God, the Holy Spirit, in your life. See, see it all as truth. Look at your own life. Examine yourself very closely. And you're going to find that the most insidious sin in your life is the thing that's been... You ready? Listen up. The most insidious sin in your life is the thing that's sitting right here all these years. Right here. For some of you, that's another person. For some of you, that's a career. So for some of you, it's money, reputation, social graces, whatever it is, religion from of old. Right here. And you're like, no way. What did David just say? Yes way. <laughs> you say, no way that could possibly be true. Yes way it's possibly true. Matter of fact, it's exactly what you would expect from a serpent. How else is sin going to seduce you? From way over there? No, right here. Right here. That's well, why you have to be extremely careful who you let near you. And you have to discern where, the, where is their heart at? Are they, are they in love with the Lord? Is that what they're in love with? Is that who they're in love with? Are they in love with the Lord? And this, this relationship is going to bring glory to God? Is that what this is about? Or is this an old friend from high school? Or is this a, you know, a family member even? Jesus Christ has no problem with dividing in family, right? He said, I came to, to, to divide families. 
mother against daughter-in-law, et cetera, et cetera. Two against three. Three against two, he said. So don't draw lines just because it's your family even. I'm not saying you got to throw your family out. <laughs> but you get what the Spirit's saying. You don't cling to other people. You don't cling to the fear of losing other people or separating from them. You have to cling to God. 1 Peter 5.5 5, You younger men likewise be subject to your elders and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Casting all your anxiety on him. This Psalm 55.22 reference. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be sober of spirit. Be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Again, the point on the board. The nature of sin, the only way someone or something can simultaneously oppose you at heart and dominate you is to counterfeit that which you hold dear. Your principles, the word of truth, the light itself. So, stepping back now. So what do we do with this information now that the Spirit's brought it all to light? I mean, what do we do with this? It's part 12 of the series, right? It's not obvious he's basically saying, do not think of sin in a religious way. Do not think of sin in, in a unidimensional uh, uh, way, fashion. I need, it's multidimensional. Sin is, is specializes in complexity and compoundedness and digging its heels way deep and growing roots and, and just planting little, uh, you know, little uh, cells, little like, you know, cancerous cells that, you know, may sit for, I don't know, two years, three years. I remember listening, now this is going to sound awful and I could be way off guard, but Hopefully you get the principle. I remember watching, uh, do you, you guys remember Ted Bundy? He was a serial killer. Awful, awful individual. And I saw his last interview. And I said, this is interesting how these people tick. I, I, I don't know. He said, you want to know why I'm, I have this problem? And he's probably talked, but you get the point. He said, when I was young, I was exposed to porn. And I became a pervert. And that's where it started. Now, that may not be completely true because he's a sociopath and a psychopath. But the seed was planted long before he started doing what he did. Don't ever think that Satan's not smart enough to plant seeds in your soul that may not sprout roots for years. And this is the favor that the Spirit's doing to you this morning. He's saying, you need to look deep, really deep, and say, what's going on? What's already there? What's potentially hazardous to your spiritual walk? What's there to undermine you? Why can't you figure it out yet? Because for years, all you did was look at the topsoil, the superficial sins, like, well, I did this, and, you know, I, I hit my sister, and I lied to my wife, and, you know, I, I, I didn't go to church when I should have, and it's all these, like, superficial type things. And the Spirit's saying, no, 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 I need you to go way deeper than that. I need you to look at 
the deceitfulness of this thing that's producing this fruit in you. And some of you have to go back to your childhood, even. Say, what, what happened? What was I doing? What, how did that even get in there? Have you ever, when's, it happened to me probably, I don't know about this morning, but definitely yesterday, I remember it. You ever say something and you're like, where the hell did that come from? You know, like cracking off, call a joke, and you're like, that's like completely ungodly. Where did that come from? And you, and you figure out, I watched this stupid movie five years ago, and it was a certain, yeah, you're laughing, but it's sad, right? It's similar circumstances, and that's the thing I think of. I don't think of the Word of God. I think of some line from some ungodly movie that I shouldn't have watched, obviously. That's what comes to mind? Yeah, that's how it works. And it doesn't just work with your speech. It could work in other damaging ways. You can be as creative as you want because that's what the sin nature likes to do. Speculate, invent. Yeah, I know. So that's what we do. That's the question. What do we do with this information now that it's brought to light? We dig deep within ourselves. That's what we do. We dig deep. We examine everything closely. We use the light of the Word of God as our interpreter. As our interpreter. Life doesn't interpret the Bible. The Bible interprets life. Life does not interpret the Bible. The Bible interprets life. That's a that's like a big aha for, I imagine, half the people listening to my voice right now. Most people use life to interpret the Bible. Well, it feels good, and God loves me, so it must be right. Wrong, 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 wrong. The Bible interprets life, not the other way around. Not, certainly not emotions or fruit of partiality. This means that we might need to call out the person in the mirror or someone we spend a lot of time with. Our suspicion of where sin might be lurking in our lives ought to turn over every stone, shine light in every corner, confess every sin we see in the process. I think for most of us, the hardest or often the hardest part of this exercise concerns our relationships with others. I think most of us by now, especially if you've been with this ministry for any period of time, you know that we're kind of used to looking in the mirror and going, you know, like, yeah, I know, I'm a sinner. It's not, it's ugly. I'm this, I'm that. I, 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 you know, God's working with me on these things. But it's weird because when it comes to our relationships with others, all of a sudden these like barriers go up. Right? Like we don't want to do this exercise when when we're talking about relationships with others, because we're social animals, right? And we we don't often like to sever relationships at a certain level. Go to Psalm 139.21. So there's a certain difficulty that happens when we turn our attention to our relationships. 
Now, granted, you can't control the way someone else feels about you, but you can certainly control how you think about others. You can certainly examine that part of your life, your side of the equation, so to speak. And there's a certain difficulty there. Psalm 139, 21. And it's not just friends. It's friends and family, right? Friends and work associates sometimes. You know, there's like concentric rings of difficulty. Usually the closer they are to you, by blood even, the harder it is to do some of this. But that's the way it goes. Like I said, Jesus Christ is not partial. Just because someone was born into your family or you were born into someone else's family does not mean the rules change. Right? It doesn't mean the rules change. Psalm 139.21 Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Is that not a fair question to ask yourself? If someone says up, comes up to you, your best friend says, man, Jesus Christ is a farce. And you brush it off so you can go have a beer with that person. Something's wrong with you. And that might not even be something they say, but everything that they do says they could care less about Jesus Christ. But you somehow overlook all that consistently. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? Is that not a fair question? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you, Lord? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Can you say that? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see, he's pleading. Do you see it? He's pleading. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Search me completely. That's what this is. This right here, guys, this is a surgical knife for your soul. And the psalmist is basically figuratively saying, use this, please. Search deep in me. Cut deep. It's going to hurt, right? Just like if you get cut with a scalpel, it's going to hurt. But you're going to get to that place where you need to be, where light can now shine. You're going to take off the coverings, right? And now open that up and light shines in. Search me. I want to know the truth. Thy will be done. That's what humility looks like. See if there be any hurtful way in me. A lot of you can answer that practically or address that practically by saying, okay, see if there's any hurtful way in me. Hurtful to who? Are you more concerned with hurting your friends and family or offending the holy God of the universe? Which one are you more um, concerned with? How do you live your life? I mean, God says these people over here these sons of disobedience, they're my enemies. How is it that you're a friend with them? Well, that makes you, as Scripture says, an enemy of mine. You have to choose your camps. See, some of you run back and forth and think you're being slick. I'm going to run over here in this camp, and then I'm going to run back to church. And as soon as I leave church, I run over to this camp again, and then I run back to church, and I play religion. See, I come to church, I put on my... my uh, Whitewash, you know, I come and I get scrubbed and it's whitewashed, you know, but I'm dead inside. I'm not saying you do that. That sounds more like an unbeliever, but you know what I'm saying. The church goer, that person. There's a lot of them probably in 
pews right now. Playing a game. Whitewashing. <laughs> Look at the psalmist is begging. Do you have this prayer? Is this your earnest prayer? This is my prayer. The older I get, the more mature I get. This is my prayer. It's not even specific anymore most of the time. It's just, just show me. Where am I off? I want to be an instrument of righteousness. Just use me. I know you can't use me if I'm preoccupied with ridiculousness, if I'm preoccupied with people that cannot stand my Lord and Savior, if I'm preoccupied with all the devices and the things and the instruments that they use to distract me. You know, if I'm preoccupied with the other side of the street, and every time the bald guy gets, well, that would be me in the mirror, but whatever. Every time the bald guy goes and says, don't go over there, I ignore him. Every time the Spirit speaks through some vessel or through the Word of God, I pick up my Bible, I ignore it. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Do you see the humility there? The psalmist's openness to having light shine upon his life. Up here on the board, I'll give you the 1 Corinthians 6.12 of the Amplified Classic. Paul wrote this, Everything is permissible, allowable, and lawful for me, but not all things are helpful, good for me to do, expedient and profitable when considered with other things. That means you have to look at your own life. Don't say, well, it's good for past Pastor Ed's doing it. I have a nice Grand Cherokee out there. Maybe you can't handle it. Maybe you become cocky with it. So, I, I, you know, if Sean drives around, all of a sudden he's got his shades on, he's got, he's got bass going, he's like, I'm like, get out. Can't handle it. I'm not saying it's a great car. I'm just being a wise guy, right? I'm just trying to make a point. What's good for me might not be good for you. You might not be able to handle what I have in my life. I might not be able to handle what you have in your life. Seriously, I may not. You ever think about that? What's a perfect example in America? What's American meter stick? Money. I'm not destitute. I'm not rich. Maybe God's saying, well, if you were rich, maybe something would happen. If you were destitute, maybe you couldn't hack it. Hack it. I don't know. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're weak. Maybe you have to have a lot of money because you're weak. Maybe you have to have a little money because you're weak in the other direction. Maybe you're in the middle like me. Because you're just weak. <laughs> in every direction, right? <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> you know what I'm saying, right? Like, everything's different. And so that's what, he, that's what the Bible says. Good for me to do. That's ah, lawful. Nobody's going to arrest you for having this or that or having this kind of a relationship or that kind. You're not going to get arrested. You're not going to find in the Bible that says specifically, don't do that. Everything is permissible, allowable, and lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Good for me to do, expedient and profitable when considered with other things. Everything is lawful for me, but I will not become a slave of anything or be brought under its power. If you consistently choose something that is supposedly right and it hurts another individual every time, you're a slave. 
And you're under the power of that thing, whatever it is. You're a slave. And Paul says, I will not become a slave of anything. Or be brought under its power. Now here's where, and we're getting close to running out of time. Not yet, but close. I'm like less than halfway through my notes, but that's perfectly fine. Here's the point. Therein lies a favorite breeding ground for sin. That chasm between something intrinsically benign or good and the exploitation of it by sin. Arguably one of the favorite breeding grounds for sin. When I can pick up my Bible, literally turn to a verse, and I'm thinking of Matthew 4, for example, where Satan uses Holy Scripture. Go see, it says right here. It's good to do that thing. So it's good, but then I exploit that thing in sin. One of the greatest breeding grounds for sin of all. Because we got an excuse. If anybody asks us, we pick up our Bible and say, see right here? But Paul just said, everything might be lawful, but it might not be profitable. It may not be good. And it's that chasm between, you know what I'm saying? It's that chasm between something intrinsically okay and the exploitation of it by sin. So let's investigate this a little bit more. Men, is it a good thing to work hard? Yes or no? You can go ahead. Yeah, thank you. Indeed, for even the Bible says we ought to work hard always as unto the Lord. But what if your family needs your leadership and you're too busy working hard, quote-unquote, to tend to their immediate needs? Is that profitable anymore? Sounds like the only profit you might be thinking about is the one in your pocket. Not the one that really matters. Women, is it a good thing to submit to your husband? Wow, that one's really quiet. I don't know, DJ. This is like really quiet. It's like, hip. It's like little mice. Hip. Hip. Some of them like pinching themselves while they're doing it. Like, yes. Like taking a needle. You know why? The Bible says so. But what if your husband tries to force his own ungodly convictions upon you? The Bible says we must obey God rather than men. Acts 5.29. You come to your own conclusions. Is it profitable for you to follow something ungodly being impressed upon you? You decide for yourselves. Now women are like, that's right. That's right. I'll never have to obey again because all i got to do is say that's ungodly. Pastor Ed said it. The point is, it's always situational. Again, the point of the board, therein lies the favorite breeding ground, or a favorite breeding ground for sin, that chasm between something intrinsically benign and good and the exploitation of it by sin. 
Satan employed this tactic to test Jesus in Matthew 4, using Holy Scripture as the lever. No misapplied doctrine is no longer truth, even if pristinely quoted as Holy Scripture. It's only truth when it's rightly applied, in other words. It's no longer truth. Truth is not just words on a paper. Do you understand? Truth is truth. The truth of the matter is, as Paul just wrote, the truth of the matter is, if it's this and profitable and the will of God, then it's good. But I cannot suck something out of something holy, misappropriate it, and still say it's good just because the thing that I sucked out is intrinsically good, like Holy Scripture. That's what Matthew 4 teaches us. Jesus used appropriately applied truth to, quote, resist the devil, and the devil fled from him, to borrow from James in 4.7. You know, I was thinking about that. Jesus would have failed the test, and I speak as a man for illustration purposes only. Jesus would have failed the test had he made the mistake of turning his attention inward to, let's say, focusing on his hunger or his loss of heavenly power. If he turned inward, man, turn this rock to bread, throw yourself down, show off a little bit. If he turned inward, this is our principle from Thursday. The influence of sin. If you've turned inward, focusing on self, goals, aspirations, desires, relationships, etc., then sin has gained on you. There's a difference between examining yourself and focusing on yourself for the sake of self. That's the point. Whenever our, quote, undistracted devotion, 1 Corinthians 7.35, is interrupted, it is a telltale sign that sin is gaining ground experientially. In other words, if sin has distracted your attention from him to something else, from righteousness to unrighteousness, if we turn in, if we become self-absorbed, that thing, you know that ugliness? It's all about me now. The corollary from our reading of the fall in the garden up here on the board, the garden scene with the introduction of sin in the garden comes a pivotal lesson for all of us. If our response to God is ever anything but 100% submissive, but rather self-absorbed, focusing on pain even. Remember last Sunday, I was, he had me talking about you know carrying your own cross. And how many people I hear say that? I'll carry my own cross. Now, you're reaping what you sowed. There's a little bit of distinction there, I'm just going to say. The cross you're carrying is a lot heavier than it probably should be, quote-unquote, because you keep sinning. So let's call a spade a spade here. Let's not divert the truth. Let's not misapply things, misappropriate things, but rather self-absorbed, focusing on pain, etc., then we know that sin has gripped us. Just thinking about this. Sin has a poker player's tell. Do you know what a tell is? Like when you're playing to- poker and someone's like trying to bluff you and they, you know you can see like their eye twitches or they start like, you know, oh no, I got three aces, right? That's a tell. Most, hopefully it's not that bad, but you know what I'm saying. I'm not a good poker player because of that. I'm not a good, you know, anyways, 
Not that you give a crap. Sin has a poker player's tell. And here it is, up here on the board. Proverbs 19.3 in the Amplified. The foolishness of man undermines his way, ruining whatever he undertakes. Then his heart is resentful and rages against the Lord. For being a fool, he blames the Lord instead of himself. That's a, that's a tell. If you stop blaming the Lord for your pain, that's a tell. In your own soul. You know, it's my cross to bear. I think you might be blaming the Lord for some of the crappy decisions you've made. Do you know what I'm getting at? That's, a, that's the tell of sin itself. Because sin says, awesome, I don't have to take responsibility. I can still hide out over here in the corner. You're going to blame God. Awesome, I get to, I get to survive another day. Because you have blamed God. And when you do that, that's when you know as an individual, sin is deceiving you. If a person becomes defensive around truth, using tactics like, you know, God made me this way, then chances are they are gripped by sin. The pivotal question the Spirit keeps revisiting with us is up here on the board. How do even well-intentioned believers get caught up in subjectivity, partiality, and the deceitfulness of sin? We looked at Proverbs 4:13 to 15 in the English Standard Version, at least up here on the board. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let it go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. I really do hope you all read this week's blog titled Walking on Thin Ice. It's yet another warning from this ministry to stay away from things that are tempting to you, tempting you to sin. Even if, especially so, given the devices of the devil and his deceitful scheming and lack of scruples, even if, at face value, said thing is benign, you know, maybe good for someone else. Even if that's true. Stay away from things that are tempting you to sin. Just because they're good for someone else doesn't mean they're good for you. One more analogy, and then I, we have to have communion service this morning. If a father says to his children, you cut the lawn, you take out the trash. And both choose to take out the trash. Is it righteous for the one who is supposed to cut the lawn to say, but dad, I did a good thing. I took out the trash. How can you scold me? We play those games all the time with our Father in Heaven. But I took out the trash. What if I said, to hell with all you this morning. I'm going to go out to some, uh, I'm going to go out in the street down near the mall and I'm going to start evangelizing people. I'm going to hand out tracts. I'm going to give them the gospel. I'm going to do all kinds of stuff. Is that a good thing? Yeah, but where am I supposed to be? Right here. How could, how could God scold me for that? 
We play those games all the time with our Father in Heaven. We say, in no particular order, in no particular individuality in view, but isn't it good for me to be married? Or, isn't it good to show others my love? Or, isn't it good that I work so hard? Or, isn't it good that I help my kids out when they're struggling? Or, isn't it good that, and you fill in the blanks. For every situation I just listed, I had a counterfeit teed up. Not everyone should marry or are allowed by God to remarry. The world doesn't need your personal brand of love. It needs the truth, a.k.a. Christ's love. You need to work to live, not live to work. You need to stop enabling your kids. Generically, it's never good if the thing you're doing is against the will of God. Never. How could it be? We have this as a running definition, do we not? Again, generically, it's never good if the thing you're doing is against the will of God. The simple definition for sin, and I'm going to end here, sin is any lack of conformity to God's will, whether expressed actively or passively. Amen? All right, let's get some music on. We're going to get ready for communion service.
Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11.27. 11.27. I just want you to see this through your eye gate, that's all. 1 Corinthians 11.27. Twenty-seven. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in doing so, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason... Many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. That is the attitude we're supposed to have. That is the type of introspective examination that we're supposed to perform. This is not just some ritual to fill your belly. This is a very solemn affair. Go to verse 23 now. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, remembrance of the person of our Lord. Let's eat the bread. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, in remembrance of his work. Let's drink the cup. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of gathering together, of communing with you this way, of fellowshipping in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Father. What a message you've given us this morning. So much to think about, Father. So much examination before us. We pray that your Spirit continue to encourage us, to exhort us, to reveal to us the truth about us, about our lives, how we live them. And if we truly are living in humility, Father, we're so grateful for the time you spend with us, your patience, your Mercy, your love, none of this would even be possible without those things. And Father, of course, we just pray as we take these things out to a world that's just rotting. It's got to break your heart, Father. I know your wrath is real. We know that it's true. We know that it's righteous. We know that you love us, Father. We just ask and pray then that The things we take out are received before it's too late for some. 
We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit. Amen. Thank you.